In college, I joined the Army. It was a mechanized infantry National Guard unit, and I was an ROTC cadet there. But before all that, there was boot camp. And before boot camp, there's this three-day period called in-processing. Some of you might remember that. In-processing was a really weird three days. You stood in endlessly long lines for things like vaccine injections and uniforms and canteens and helmets and filling out medical forms and on and on. And then there were the dreaded haircuts. Imagine 130 long-haired men all in lines queuing up to four barber stations. How would you like your hair cut? One of the barbers would say, and the others would laugh in unison. I think I heard that half a dozen times as I was waiting for my turn. 30 seconds later and half a pound of hair is gone and the barbers didn't even give you enough time to stroke your head in the mirror in disbelief. All you could do is look at the almost bald recruits around you and think, do I look like that? <laughs> and oh, one last thing, uh, done it in processing, yeah military ID cards. Uh, there we go. Yeah, look at that face. Deer in the headlights. Trust me, there was so much trepidation and fear, and it's right there in my very eyes. That's me, not somebody else. Um, in processing came with a persistent feeling. You know, like that time when the highway patrol car pulls up behind you on the highway, the lights are blaring, your heart sinks, only to see him pass by and pull someone else over. In processing had that sense about it, except you are the one getting pulled over. There's an unsettledness, a sense of impending doom, and we all hung out and queried each other endlessly. Do you think it's going to be bad? I'm hearing rumors. What have you heard? What about you? Then they loaded us on to these things called cattle trucks, uh, 30 recruits per truck, two big bags of camouflaged gear. And oh, yes, there's just that one steely-eyed drill sergeant who knew what was coming. I knew I shouldn't have trusted him. Then the driver hits the brakes, and we clumsily brace ourselves like it's the first time standing on a subway. Then the doors open and all hell breaks loose. Dozens of neck vein popping, whistle blowing, yelling, screaming drill sergeants get all up in your face. Welcome to day one of hell. The first sentence in Isaiah's book is like in processing. You sense something is about to go down. Think of those first recipients of Isaiah's book. On the one hand, they would say, isn't this the Isaiah we know? Prophet, ha. Huh? Why listen to him? But then on the other hand, look at the size of those scrolls. He's been up to something, and it's coming our way. My friends, it's coming our way too as we begin this study in the book of Isaiah. What Isaiah had to say to the Old Testament people of God is for the New Testament people of God today. And it will be unsettling. Some of you may find it too much to bear. But if you humble yourself and listen and ask the right questions of yourself, you will be forever changed. Today we're going to cover all 31 verses of chapter 1. Um, but I'm going to begin just by reading the first verse. And then we'll read the, the rest as we go along. 
I strongly encourage you to bring a Bible. Uh, ESV is our version, or you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. You might need to share. We're on page 566, Isaiah chapter 1. And here's what we read. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word, right? Let's pray. Father, um, we stand before you as your people. Um, we, we, we know the metaphor is right. We are sheep, and we tend to go astray. We're thankful that your word is alive and active, and it penetrates. We need that. We pray for that in this moment. Amen. Before we look at the rest of the chapter, uh, I want to ask three questions of this first verse. The questions are what, who, and when. What, who, and when. First, the what. Well, what do we read? The vision of Isaiah which he saw. The book of Isaiah is a prophetic vision. It's a masterpiece. He presents us with a new way of seeing, seeing from God's perspective. And without God's perspective, think about it. All of life is lived as a hunch. Without this new sight, life is really a groping in the dark for meaning and happiness. Isaiah speaks to us and says, come with me. I've seen what you need to see. God has shown me. You no longer need to live in the shadows. You no longer need to live with life's big questions unanswered. Would you like that? Of course you would. But let me warn you, it's disruptive. Now, the problem with Israel at that time and the problem facing the church today is that we want God in our lives but without the disruption, which means God isn't really at the center of our lives, but rather he's on the periphery there to lend a hand if needed. My friends, if we're to experience the meaning and happiness that only God can give us, then we must allow him to disrupt us. That's the what. Now for the who. Now with regards to the, the who, there's not the band, to the who, uh, we have two answers. The first who is easy. Isaiah, son of Amos. Rabbinic tradition teaches that Amos was the brother of Amaziah, king of Judah, who reigned right before Uzziah. This means Isaiah was in the royal family. The second answer to the who question is more important. It is in his name. In Hebrew, his name literally means the Lord saves. His very name confronts us. Why do I say confronts us? Don't we all welcome the idea that the Lord saves? No. His name speaks of a grace that's beyond our grasp. It's beyond ourselves. And we, like those ancient Israelites, we want to retain control, do we not? We don't want to think ourselves needy. We don't want the truth behind the universe to be that we cannot save ourselves. We'd rather walk in blindness, chasing after our own narratives, than to stop in our tracks and look at Isaiah and confess, yes, the Lord, only the Lord saves. So this book of Isaiah will lay us bare as our idolatry is addressed. And I know we don't carve deities out of wood today, 
but we do bow to idols nonetheless. And without a word from God, we will keep chasing glory in idols of career, home, relationships, wealth, you name it. And I'm indebted to the work of Ray Ortland Jr. And I'm going to quote him probably 100 times before this series is over. Did I mention there's 66 books in Isaiah? We'll be here a while. Ray Ortland Jr. points out that the people of Isaiah's day had an unrealistic appraisal of themselves. They went through the motions of biblical faith. But when it came to the hardball of everyday life, they saw no relevance in God's help. And so the prophet, with his name, the Lord saves. Well, the people could see a mile away what he stood for, and not many listened. Their hearts were too dead to resonate with the greatest thing in the universe. And so it is today. If the gospel that you cannot be your own savior, but God can save you totally, does not thrill you, it is probably an irritant to your self-importance, lust for control, and moral superiority. The Lord saves is the improbable truth we've been looking for, but resisting all our lives. Now for the when. For a few hundred years, the nation of Israel had been split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Now, the kingdom of Judah was a little bit more faithful. The northern kingdom, well, apostasy was, it was quick, it was deep, it was firmly rooted. But in the south, spiritual vitality kind of ebbed and flowed. But the overall trajectory was down. Isaiah preached to the southern kingdom called Judah. Isaiah began his work around 740 B.C. Judah at that time was still basking in a long-sustained prosperity, but the writing was on the wall. Isaiah spoke on God's behalf to the people for roughly 50 years. And shortly after he delivered the scrolls of the book of Isaiah, shortly after he was murdered, Sawn in half, he was. So that is the opening sentence of Isaiah. It's meant to say disruption is coming. Now comes the rest of the chapter. The prophet, whose name means the Lord saves, brings us into God's presence. And we hear God's invitation, come, let us reason together that I may save you. Now, for us to come to the table with God and reason with him, we must first sense our need, and that's what chapter 1 is all about. We're going to divide our time under three headings. Isaiah is meant to convict us of sin, call us to repentance, and consider God's redemption. Convict, call, consider. First, convict us of sin. For those who haven't yet experienced the salvation of God, the phrase conviction of sin is irksome. It rubs them wrong. It irritates them. I'm not a sinner, they insist. Surely you're judging me. But the Christian sees conviction of sin in a different light. Ray Ortland writes, Conviction of sin is the lance of the divine surgeon, piercing the infected soul, releasing pressure, letting the infection pour out. Conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit being kind to us by confronting us with the light we don't want to see and the truth we're afraid to admit and the guilt we prefer to ignore. Conviction of sin is the violent sweetness of God opposing the sins lying comfortably undisturbed in our lives. 
That is what God does through verses 2 through 9. First, Isaiah shows us God's broken heart. And in verses 2 and 3, God's children makes dumb, dumb animals look smart. Verse 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. My dog, Gus, is a wonderful dog. Now, we feed him one big meal uh, at 4 o'clock. It used to be 5 o'clock. You'll see why in a second. Now, the problem with Gus is he doesn't wear a wristwatch. <laughs> it just keeps falling off. So around 2.30, every day if I'm home, Gus finds me, and he'll start just milling around me. And every time I move just a little bit, he thinks I'm about ready to go and feed him. And he gets all excited, and I'm like, Gus, sorry, it's not even 3 o'clock yet. Gus is like the ox and the donkey. He knows his master. He knows his master well enough to draw near. Not so the people of God. Listen, when the people of God stop understanding that God alone is Savior, they stray away and they rebel. That's God's broken heart. Next, Isaiah shows us our broken strength. We see it in the first half of verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. First, just notice this is a lament. Ah, says God. God isn't rubbing our noses in our mess to punish us. He's not nagging. He's weeping. Why? The second part of verse 4 helps us. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, how is it that they and we forsake the Lord? when they worship at the temple, and we worship at church. Well, from God's point of view, to forsake the Lord is to treat him as the last resort rather than the fountainhead. Isaiah says that that, that condition of the heart, it estranges us from God. But we often don't see ourselves this way. So Isaiah provides two images to show how clueless we can be. The first image is of a man so beaten down that he doesn't even feel his own wounds enough to cry out for help, verses 5 and 6. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. This is a man so beaten up, he doesn't even feel it. What does this show us? This shows us that the big obstacle to resting in God alone for salvation is that we feel healthy, or at least healthy enough. But apart from God, no one is healthy. The second image is that of an invaded country that doesn't sense its own humiliation. Verse 7 and 8. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate and overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field. Isaiah presents a pitiful view of God's people. They're helpless, they're vulnerable, they're exposed. But this is not God's desire. They need a savior if only they could see it. And then we get a a glimpse, a little tongue-tied here today, a glimpse of God's grace for us in verse 9. 
Here he shows us God's unbroken grace. If the Lord of hosts had not left a few survivors, we should have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Ortland writes, it's a miracle that your church survives at all, but not because God is weak. He is the omnipotent Lord of hosts. The church survives because why? God saves sinners. He sees what we become left to ourselves, and in mercy, he stretches out his hand and says, I will not let you go. Think about it. If it were not for God's preserving grace, we would all relive the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in our own lives. They are what we once were. And the only reason why we're here is the Lord's over, overruling mercy, saving us from ourselves. In the first section, our God who saves sinners works to convict us of the fact that we were and are sinners. Next, God issues a call of repentance. The award-winning thinker and writer, David Foster Wallace, who sadly hanged himself in 2008, spoke these words at the Kenyon College commencement ceremonies in 2005. Many believe it's perhaps the best commencement address ever given. Here's what he said, parts of it. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up in front in daily consciousness. Wallace wasn't a religious man, but he was wise enough to realize that we fallen human beings have a worship problem. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So then it shouldn't surprise us that this call to repentance in verse 10 through 20, it, it centers upon worship. And what God wants his people to know is that worship and repentance, they're always to commingle. It's as if God is saying to them and to us, I want you to repent of your worship, for the only worship that is acceptable is worship filled with repentance. As Martin Luther stated in his first of his 95 theses, the whole of life should be repentance. Ortland describes repentance as this, listen, an honest new self renouncing the shifty old self. And as Isaiah teaches here, repentance turns from merely forms of worship that is going through the motions, attending church and singing songs. It turns from mere forms of worship to authenticity with God. The southern kingdom Judah boasted in itself. Why? Because Jerusalem and the temple 
were in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom no longer had access to the temple grounds, but Judah did. And Judah had elaborate worship services with grand sacrifices. And their worship looked fantastic in their eyes. We don't have a problem. Don't go looking for any reason for us to repent. Whatever shortcomings we may have, our elaborate, faithful worship service more than make up for it. God's people today can think this way too. I may need some improvement, but deep radical change brought about from deep heartfelt repentance. No, I go to church. I just joined a discipleship group. That's how they saw it. But how did God see it? Verses 10 and 11, God confronts us. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is a multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. The Lord is saying, I, I've had it up to here with your sacrifices, with how you worship. And no doubt, though, the people would have said, but these sacrifices, this temple, it's, it's all your idea. And they would be right. They're just following the instructions that God gave them in the book of Leviticus. But God here is saying, I do not identify with what you're doing, however biblical it is. God is saying, stop. I've had enough. Why? Verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? My friends, this is God's heart for worship. What is worship? It is appearing before God. It is drawing near in honest, repentant humility. Think about it. You've experienced this, Christian, before, right? How we can hide from God behind our wall of repentance-less worship. When we carry on this way, God says we are trampling his courts. Let me ask you, as I ask myself, how much of your worship is repentant-less worship? It happens more than we like. It happens to me. Hence God's call to repentance. The confrontation and accusation continue through verse 15. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Few people think their hands are bloody enough that God wouldn't listen to their prayers. But remember, Jesus says that murder takes many forms, including spiteful thoughts, anger, unforgiveness, 
Every time you gossip and take part in character assassination, you've got blood on your hands. Now why? Why does God confront us so? So that we will delight to hear his invitation. Look at verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. God calls us to repent in obvious ways. Clean up your lives, he says. I like what Ortland points out in his commentary. He, he says that, that God is emphasizing our active repentance. God says, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. See, true repentance goes back and cleans up the mess we've made. What do I mean? Have you ever confessed to God that you harbored anger or bitterness towards someone? What God is asking of us is not just to confess and ask God to forgive us, but to have the heart to go back and make things right with the one you're angry with. The worship God desires doesn't just change our relationship with God, but our relationship with others. And it is with this repentance in which we see ourselves as God sees us that we become ready, ready for what? Answering God's call in verses 18 through 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is saying, come closer. Let's talk. Here's my invitation. You present your blood-stained hands to me in deep confession, and I will wash you clean in the blood of my son, Jesus, and your life and your worship will come alive. God is saying, my desire is to do what you desperately need, but you've been too rebellious to even admit it. God is saying, salvation belongs to me, and I want to save you. Will you let me? And if you're willing, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured. How could anyone say no? Stubbornness. That is all that's keeping us from renewal is our stubbornness. God isn't asking for too much. He desires, all he desires is an honest, genuine humility. And listen, this isn't just for the one day when you come to God. It's for every day of our lives. Every day we live in repentant faith and come to the cross of Christ and draw near in worship. So we looked at the conviction of sin and the call to repentance. Lastly, we're going to consider God's redemption. What if there's a God who cares more about human flourishing than we do? What if God has a people he delights in more than they can comprehend? What if God wants to show us how silly and foolish we are when we grab a hold of all kinds of things in life for meaning and purpose other than him? 
What if God wants to lead his people into a life of victory and joy that changes the world for good? Well, my friends, he does. And that is what Isaiah says in our last section. Salvation isn't just about you getting your sins forgiven. It's about some, something far more grand. Redemption, reconciliation, righteousness in this very world. First, the Lord cries out in another lament. The first word, how, should be read like a lament. As in, oh, how the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross and your best wine mixed with water. That's what sin does. It waters down life. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Isaiah is describing how the people of God have become unfaithful to their first love, and how righteousness used to be there, used to be everywhere, so much so as it was as if righteousness dwelled in the city, but now murderers dwell there. Isaiah paints a picture of righteousness being a lonely traveler in a hostile country and nowhere to find a home. And what becomes of a land where God is abandoned and unrighteousness pervades? It becomes a place where no one is responsible for the well-being of their neighbors. Princes are rebels and companions of thieves. People love bribes. They love getting rewarded. There is no justice for the fatherless. And the cry for help from widows lands on deaf ears. And my friends, that isn't just for that day. This is for our day, too. Helpless people get stepped on while the powerful scratch each other's back. And Republicans and Democrats aren't going to solve it. The Lord is saying he's headed up to here with how unrighteous this world is. Now, you might expect God to say, forget it, to hell with all of you. But no, that's not how God responds. Verse 24. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. God is saying, I see what's happening. I'm not going to sit idly by. I will do what needs to be done. Now, what comes next is so utterly magnificent that, that if we grasp it, it'll cause us to draw near to God in great repentance, asking him to wash us clean through the blood of Christ and putting us to work in this cause of righteousness on earth. God does something surprising. He brings redemption and with it restoration of righteousness on earth through his people. Verses 25 and 26. I will turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with lye, and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God turns to us with his mighty hand, and he does two things at once. He turns to cleanse, and he turns to restore. God redeems us to restore us so that we would be his better righteous people, so that we can be a transforming influence 
in this world. Listen, salvation is far more than your sins being forgiven. A seminary friend of mine who I dearly love, Reverend James Kessler, he planted a church in Columbus. We worked for a brief time. He worked with me in the youth department in St. Louis. And he has a brilliant mind. He's a very gifted writer. In an article this week on our calling to love God and to live righteous, pious lives for his glory, he penned these words. James writes, um, oh, and by the way, a firth is kind of like an estuary, you know, water going into the land. James writes, the Bible does not give up on the promise of righteous people living righteously, and it hasn't given up on personal piety. We tend to think of piety as false piety, that is, pious living to be seen and recognized, or as a fig leaf over the hidden impious lives we live Instead, this piety begins with what? Our abundant love of others in concert with the knowledge of God and his will. There are so many places to begin and so many needs of the hour. A world of people who could benefit from our righteous lives rolling into theirs like a firth of God's own mercy. They need our trustworthy ethic even our commitment to good and right biblical boundaries, like the stone walls providing pasture for anxious sheep to mew and eat and drowse. Paul calls it approving what is excellent. But for the one you love who does not know Jesus and is full of self-sabotaging sin, your piety is not some cheap trick, but life itself. Your approval of what is excellent matters. The righteous lives of Christians matter in the way a streetlight matters when you're driving an unfamiliar road late at night. The way a good home matters when yours is filled with violence. The way a lifeguard's training is a kind of piety that can save you from drowning. This is Paul's prayer for us. May we be full of love that knows God so that we can be filled full of righteousness that serves God. Christian, our righteousness really matters, which is why a daily life of repentance and love for the Lord is so important. It bears fruit that makes us and this world more beautiful. You may have given up on that, but God has not. Isaiah says it's not done yet. He lays a decision before us. Our decision is in verses 27 through 28. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Once again, Ray Ortland Jr., who, by the way, he taught my seminary class on Isaiah. Um, and yet his son, Dane Ortland, was a fellow seminary student of mine, um, gentle and lowly. That's his son wrote that. He also wrote one of the best commentaries on Isaiah, Ray Jr. did. It makes this important point to consider. He writes, God does not redeem us by casually sweeping his standards aside. God pays the price demanded by his own justice and righteousness. 
This is the magnitude of his achievement at the cross. Redemption comes not by God's leniency, but by his justice and righteousness, fully satisfied in Christ. We are redeemed at a cost to God we will never understand. And putting our sin upon his own son on the cross, God honored his own moral government of the universe. Our part, Isaiah tells us, is to repent. Those in her who repent by righteousness. There's no way around repentance. The only alternative isn't good. But rebels and sinners shall be broken, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. That's the decision before us. We also lastly see a reality before us. What happens if you reject God's offer? Verses 29 through 31. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. These words are like a gut punch to anyone who would say no to God's call to repentance. People often say, what does it really matter? If I want to live my life how I want to live my life, who cares? But God is saying, every moment of your life matters to me. Your choices have lasting repercussions. That's why I'm confronting you with this truth. And the truth is that we foolishly worship anything other than God. And so in the end, all the foolish things we desire leave us with nothing. That's what these metaphors from Isaiah tell us. The strong in his work, the oaks, the gardens. These are metaphors for human strengths and human potential and preferences. The point is that our own brilliance and desires will be the death of us. It'll be just like a tinder and a match. It will burn. But repentance opens up true life. In the ways of God, the weakness of repentance is how we experience the power of redemption. And our redemption changes everything for us and for this world. Well, the hit Apple TV series, Ted Lasso, has captured the hearts of millions of people around the world. I can't wait for the next season. How about you guys? Ted Lasso is a humble, encouraging team builder who is hired to take over a British soccer team. The problem is Ted Lasso is an American football coach from a second-rate college team. And another problem is the owner of the English club wants to get back at her ex-husband by running the team into the ground. As the seasons unfold, something interesting happens. Did you notice it? Every person that Ted Lasso comes into relationship with becomes better. The cocky, self-loving star Jamie Tart gets humbled and becomes kind. The gruff, over-the-hill star Roy Kent becomes a leader, but he won't stop cussing. <laughs> the insecure Keely Jones 
comes to live with confidence and self-esteem, does she not? If you've seen the series, you've seen all these characters. Oh, yes, there's the one who turns out to be a Judas, but you get my point. The gentle and good and righteous life of Ted Lasso has a transforming effect on the world around him. My friends, that is God's goal for his people. God wants us to be like Ted Lasso, but with gospel transformation. God cares more about flourishing of society than we do. God cares more about the disadvantage than we do. And so the Lord says to his people, you have a worship problem. Please come to your senses. All your religious motions are really a means of avoiding me. The only life that can truly satisfy your soul cannot be lived on the periphery. God delights in his people, and he wants us to draw near to him. And that is what worship is. But we cannot draw near to God without repentance. Why? Because every day we sin in countless ways, and we push the Lord to the periphery. And so we substitute church attendance for genuine intimacy and renewal. And so God wants us to take our sin seriously. And when we do, what happens? Our worship becomes infused with repentance, which produces joy and delight and love. And when our worship is, in, is infused with repentance, then the Lord draws near. Then our worship is real and powerful because it's infused with God's grace and because it is infused with the love of Christ. So, as we come to the Lord's Supper, let us be reminded, salvation belongs to the Lord, and let us believe that and delight in that. Let us approach in repentance and depart in peace. Let's pray. Father, we confess that you are the one who wants to draw near. You are the one who wants us to come and consider, not just on the day we came to believe, but each and every day. We repent of putting you on the periphery. We ask that you do whatever it takes so that we could trust in you, that we wouldn't hide behind our false piety, but rather we truly yearn to confess and confess and confess so that you may heal and heal and heal and give life, we pray. Amen.